Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Giant Mess, a show for Giants and Mets fans who can appreciate some comedy, some movies, and some TV mixed in for good measure. On this episode, we'll talk about the white-hot New York Mets LFGM. We'll also talk about the New York Giants and their training camp. No news is good news. All quiet on the Western Front. What are the top takeaways? What are some bold predictions? We'll also talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I got to see it. Once I got to see it at the theater. I'm going to give you my review. We also rented The Long Shot and The Upside. What were my thoughts there? And The Sopranos binge continues on. It marches on. We're in season four now. I'm going to give you my thoughts. So without further ado, let's dive into it. First and foremost, we're going to talk some TV. Before I get to The Sopranos and the binge there, let's talk about The OA on Netflix. Canceled after two seasons. Thank God. I had to grin and bear it for season one. My head almost came off my body. My brain almost leaked outside of my skull. It was hard to take, but the wife was into it. And it had a pretty good ending. So I think so I thought, all right, let's give season two a shot. Fast forward two years, three years, season two finally comes out. Highly anticipated. I we got through one episode and it was like, Yeah, I can't do this. And I know a lot of people are upset. A lot of OA fans out there are very amped for season two and what what it could bring. Yeah, my mind can only take so much. There are limits to this mind. It's not very malleable anymore in this in my old age. MTV just turned like 38. This is what 38 looks like, MTV. You're welcome. So that's the big news from the, the TV world. Let's go into the Sopranos binge. I finished season three. We finished season three. Season three finale. Eh, you know, Jackie Jr. gets clipped. Kind of saw that coming. I mean, Jackie Jr., you, you, you know, multiple opportunities to do what's right. I don't know what his intentions were for Meadow. I mean, he j- I guess he just wanted to bang him and hang him. Not, we nut, we bolt, we leave. We screw, we nut, we bolt. Totally fucked that up. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Jr. was supposed to go to military school, and then he gets overwhelmed, has a panic attack, and that's good enough for his dad to be like, you know what? Maybe not on the military school front. Maybe we'll just t- send him to another private school. Paul and Ralphie have a financial conflict, and that escalated. And, uh, of course, the, the uh, Adriana got a new friend in uh, FBI agent, Daniel. I can't even, I don't even know what the last name is. And, it, you know, it, did it get me excited for season four? Hmm. You know, I'm still there. Still hanging on to it. I'm still with it. I haven't pressed the button just yet. The cancel button. And I know that's saying that's saying a lot. Like, who are you, Neil? Who the fuck are you? I'm nobody. Just one man. It's a married white man. I am the evil villain that plagues this country, according to a lot of people. And uh, I can now see why everyone thinks AJ is... Annoying. <laughs> I get it now. He just he says the wrong thing every time he opens his mouth. In Meadow, it's like she wants to go to Spain. She's talking about dropping out. And that generation of parents, they are so 
emphatic about college. You have to do college. You have to do college. And it's like, I don't know, let her take a year off, dude. What's a year off going to do? I mean, what is it? It's going to kill her momentum, going to kill her career. I just disagree wholeheartedly. And then she ends up back at Columbia anyway. But I do like the direction she's taking. That's going to be, it's making for some interesting TV. The fact that she's taking up law and that she might become a lawyer, prosecutor, attorney general, and then eventually down the road have to take on her dad. And that's a weird dynamic, that relationship with her dad. They were button heads like crazy. And then all of a sudden she has a breakdown, cries. The dad softens up a bit, but they're still coming at each other and they're smiling at each other. But you know, there's some animosity there. So that was season three. Season four, um, was season three finale? That was when Bobby Bacala's wife uh, was killed in the car accident, which, I mean, I, you know, it's Bobby Bacala. Like, come on. Like, what's his deal? And, uh, you know, it, am I supposed to take him seriously? And, you know, his wife dies, and then Meadow gets drunk and is throwing things at a junior as he sings opera. And you're like, all right. Chris finally gets revenge in season four, episode one. Carmelo's hounding Tony about life insurance, setting up a trust. Tony's running around the house hiding money. And I get it. You know, Carmela, she's worried. She thinks that Tony's numbers, his days are numbered. His number's going to come up pretty soon, and she wants to be financially set. And he's telling her, you're going to be set. Don't worry. Not good enough for her. So I can see she's getting strength. She's no longer this passive housewife. She's taking initiative and she's trying to make sure that her family's future is all set. And you see that Tony eventually later on down the road in the season, he comes around on it. So you can see this is, this seems like the season where he's, you're starting to see the transformation that we've been yearning for in the first three seasons. First, the first two, three seasons, it seemed like, you know, the mother is a thorn in his side, you know? He can't get past his mother, can't get past his mother. His mother, unfortunately, passes, and he's got his own family to deal with now. Is he now becoming his mother? Whoa. And that's why the, the series, I think, has resonated so much, is that it, it delves beyond just, you know, the, the, the flashy, sensationalistic, gratuitous uh, content that's flashy, and it will draw you in, the sex, the violence, etc., but then it gets down to a psychological level and that's where it really thrives. And now the therapy sessions are starting to make a little more sense for me. At least it's starting to connect a little bit more. Here's a guy who he wants to know what his legacy is. Does he want to be, you know, when the chick that he was banging in season three, the Mercedes Benz dealer, she commits suicide offs herself. And all of a sudden, you know, is he, is that on him? He, he's putting that suicide on himself. And then he has another guy, uh, Arthur, Artie, who tries to commit suicide after his deal goes, goes uh, you know, left, goes west, goes sideways with the Frenchie trying to sell the new next vodka. Never had Armagnac, by the way. I've seen that, and I'm like, it's too fancy. That seems like a rich person thing. So I can't comment on what the taste is like, but the new vodka, I mean, that's a hell of a selling point. Anyway, already bungles that, fucks it up, and he thinks he's going to get, you know, Soprano has planned this all along. This is like Soprano going to get revenge on Artie, his, his so-called friend, 
And now Tony's thinking, who am I? Do I really want to be known as this evil guy who's causing people to off themselves? Seeing some growth there. The whole Columbus Day episode, I mean, this is, and this is another thing that I was kind of hoping for with the season four. Season three ended in the spring of 2001, and then you had 9-11. And the show didn't come back until like a year after a full year and four days after September 11th. So it's September 2002. It's a full year. The sting, the wound, it's not so fresh. And I think you didn't get the sense. I mean, they mention it here and there. Okay, the economy sucks. Why does the economy suck? Is it because of the, the terrorist attacks? They, they briefly mention it. And I feel like we missed a great opportunity. I mean, it's a tragedy. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is immediate post 9-11 reaction from that crew, I would have liked to see it. How did they respond? And I think a lot of TV shows had to go through that. A lot of entertainers had to go through that. How do we respond um, to this? And pe some people were like, let's just put a pause on everything. And some other people were like, let's just push through this. Let's try and get through this together. And this is how we're going to do it through entertainment. And I think that it would be interesting if, if the timing had played out differently. Instead, we're a year later, and it's it's always going to be there. It's always going to be in the back of your head, in the back of their minds, but not as fresh. And maybe they had some time to process it. I mean, the fact that they haven't really addressed anyone lost. I mean, you're in New Jersey, northern New Jersey. Uh, you have there's a family, a couple families in New York. To say that no one was connected to the families was perished in that attack. I, I, I'm not saying I'm not saying it's a disservice, but I thought they would have addressed it a little bit more. Um, but the the Columbus Day episode, this and this is where the Sopranos surprises me because they address a lot of the issues that have become even more hot button sensitive topics over the years and have been addressed ad nauseum in the past few years. But this was 2002 and they're talking about, you know, how Columbus Day affects the Native Americans, how it affects the Italians, the clash between those two. Um and interesting to see them talk about things like that back then when, you know, typically stuff of that nature didn't get the 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 amount of attention it's getting now. So in a way, I don't want to say they were pioneers, but they were certainly at the forefront and talking about issues like that. I mean, the joke. Let's talk about the joke. I guess Ralphie made the joke about Ginny Sack getting a 95-pound mole removed from her ass. And Johnny Sack got back to Johnny Sack, I think, through Ralphie, who Ralphie's got his issues with, or, or uh, sorry, Polly. Polly has his issues with Ralphie. And I guess Polly tells Johnny Sack about the joke that Ralphie told, and now Johnny Sack wants Ralphie killed over a joke. And this is where we are. I mean, Ralphie and Johnny seemed like they were on the same team, like they were going to make a move against Tony, and now they're, after one joke, it seemed like there was some tension there anyway, and now Ralphie and Johnny both seem like they're going to get whacked at the same time. And then... We have an intervention, divine intervention, if you will, and they're both saved from, from getting clipped. 
the horse thing. I mean, you know, uh, Ralph buys a, a racehorse, and uh, and Tony gets involved. Um, and with Tony's advice, the horse wins, and it seems like he's encroaching on Ralphie's territory, further driving a spike or divided between the two. And it's it's mind blowing how Ralphie has lasted this long, and I guess that's why I don't really understand the mafia or the mob or their rules or their policies, because um, Ralphie just seems to be pushing the envelope with just about everyone in the family, not well liked. So it's like it feels like his the countdown is approaching zero. It's threat level midnight for Ralphie. And then of course we're up to episode seven. Um, and you know, I don't know. I don't know. There's not much going on there. There's a Ralphie and some others uh, try to pull a scam on the Department of uh, of HUD, Department of Housing and Urban Development that they, I guess, uh, found out through Carmela's cousin, who's the one who got them the who's got them sold on the life insurance and the trust. Um, and Adriana is now kind of cooperating with the FBI against Chris but not really and I, I I mean I believe her I thought this was fact that your husband cannot testify against a wife and a wife can't testify against the husband I even made a joke about it on uh, Saturday night and uh, I don't know I guess it's wrong whatever but um, you know coming around on it I mean there's two seasons left so We'll see. <laughs> I know. I know that's like not really groundbreaking insight, but uh, you know, I just I need Ralphie out of my life. Even though he's one of the better actors, Joe Panley, Panley, Joey Pants. Even though he's one of the better actors, it's just like we gotta let's get this thing moving along. Let's see how you know, because I know how it ends, which I guess kind of sucks, but um. It's good to see that he's, he, it's just, the switch is still a thing for me. The fact that he's able to get so angry at the therapist for essentially what happened with uh, the, the girl he was banging that committed suicide and, and, and pinning that on her. And it's like, and just, and, and ha having that, and, and that's, I guess, what's the, a trademark, like a signature of, sociopaths psychopaths the ability to just lose it and then act like nothing happened moments after tony fucking soprano um all right so that's tv let's dive into movies real quick once upon a time in hollywood finally got to see it we we're supposed to see it on our date night last sunday and i made the mistake of not buying the tickets in advance and when we got to the theater there was only one ticket left, and uh, the, the thought crossed my mind to be like, all right, honey, I got this. You're welcome. But uh, no, smarter heads prevailed, calmer heads prevailed, cooler heads prevailed, and uh, ended up passing. We went to Cheesecake Factory, which was delicious. But uh, later on the week, I did get to see it, um, and uh, again, went in with, I think, way too high expectations. You know, I saw the ratings um, from Rotten Tomatoes. I saw them from Lights, Camera, Barstool, IMDb, and it just seemed across the board that this is 
Quentin Tarantino's one of his best movies, possibly his best. And I came away with it kind of paralyzed, stunned is the word. I just wrote a blog post about it today, uh, Tuesday. Check it out at neillynch.com. You know, it's a lot of words. You don't have to read them all. But the basic gist and takeaway of the post was, I feel like if you were alive in the 60s, you remembered what happened during that time frame. Maybe you had family in the area, in the Hollywood area, in Los Angeles. This movie will affect you because you were aware of everything that happened during that time, the Manson family murders, and uh, it will have a profound impact on you because of the blurred line between what is real and what is fiction. And of course, Tarantino, I mean, you know, I said this right up front, cinematography was on point, dialogue is great, I mean, you can't do any better than the actors that they had, DiCaprio, Pitt, Robbie. The storyline is what tripped me up, and what was included in the film versus what wasn't included. What if you didn't have, I mean, I didn't, I, I kind of knew that the Manson family murders were tied into the movie's plot and the storyline. But I think they use that to keep you hooked, even though for the majority of the film, it's not there. Charlie Manson himself, the actor who plays him, only appears for one scene and it's less than two minutes, I think. You never see him other than that. You get to see plenty of his, his cult members, his followers, and what they're into in that whole scene, which, I mean, that is a classic Tarantino scene. Oh, spoilers. Duh. The non-spoiler review, you should go see it. I don't know that you need to see it in the theater. I don't know that you're missing that much. The twist is not... You're not going to be talking about it next year, I don't think. Um... So the non-spoiler review is, I mean, you're going to enjoy yourself. Um, if you are my age or younger, I feel like you probably don't have the, the depth of knowledge to truly fully appreciate it because there's, it's just, it is 1969 Los Angeles and Tarantino does an amazing job of painting the picture, of building the story, of building the world within the story and the universe there. And you feel like you're in 1969 Los Angeles. How I can say that, I don't know, because I've never been. I wasn't alive. So I think for the older folks who were alive or who had relatives that can remember and, and talk to them, maybe. I talked to my mom about it. You feel if, if you're not in, deeply involved in that area and you didn't live through it, it, it might miss the mark with you. You know, I felt like I, a lot of things went over my head. There were scenes where Tarantino will draw your attention to something, which he's expert level connoisseur at doing with the camera, with the positioning, everything. And so you're, you're, you're tuned in, you're honed in, you're focused and you're expecting something. And then that something doesn't happen, but maybe it did happen because of the, 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 the people involved. If you know the people involved going into it, you might have a different reaction. For me, I felt lost, you know? Um, so that's a non-spoilery review is, yeah, go see it. It's a, it's a good movie. It's almost three hours long. So supposedly there's a four hour and 20 minute cut out there, which, I mean, if I had the time, 
what should I do? <laughs> I'll probably check it out just to see if it gives me any kind of different, uh, any kind of different feeling. But the, the feeling here was it danced around what ultimately was the hook for a lot of people to go see the movie. So here's the spoiler review. If you don't want to know any of the spoilers, which, you know, whatever, you can just, there's a timestamp in the description, and you just click on that, and you just go past all this spoilery stuff. So the spoiler review. The biggest spoiler, I mean, I'll walk, I'll try and walk you through the movie. Even if it's a spoiler review, so you probably have seen it. The big spoiler, the big twist, Sharon Tate, the person who in real life was uh, eight and a half, nine months pregnant, she and three others were murdered by Charlie Manson's cult members, the, her, his followers um, in the Hollywood Hills. Uh, and in this movie, she's not. That's the big twist. Uh, basically, Rick Dalton, played by Leo DiCaprio, and Cliff Booth, his stunt double, in the movie played by Brad Pitt. It's kind of like following them along. And you're following them, and you're wondering, how is this going to intersect? What, where is this going? And not in a bad way, I don't think. It wasn't like, ah, oh, Jesus Christ, I'm bored. Where is this going? Or, you know, what, you know, but it wasn't also, you know, Avengers Endgame, where it's wall-to-wall action for three hours, and you're like, what could possibly happen next? And even then, you can kind of expect what's going to happen, and you just like seeing it come to fruition. Here, it's like, okay, well, it's one of two outcomes. Either uh, Sharon Tate gets murdered with uh, the people she's hanging out with, which she was hanging out with the heiress to the Folgers fortune, which is just like... It's so Hollywood, it blows my mind. And uh, her former ex-boyfriend, who she was dating while she met her current husband, Roman Polanski, which that's a whole other bag. Like, Polanski goes on to, you know, we, we know what happened with Polanski. And, you know, it's just interesting how, and I, I made the analogy to us, you know, like in us, we see the Michael Jackson fandom on full blast. This is a god, an icon, a legend who could do no wrong because it's 1986. Now we know things are different. And so I kind of made the, the comparison there that in 1969, Roman Polanski was like the guy, the director. And then a few years later, he's uh, extraditing himself to Poland or something because of his... Uh, is sex crimes. So, um, Tarantino captured the moment. That's for, that's, he did the right thing there. But you spend, it's two hours and 40 minutes, the four hour and 20 minute cut. I would love to see that just cause I feel like I don't, it's almost like I, I would do, but I don't because it's like, if this is your two hour and 41 minute cut, what the fuck did you cut? Did you cut? a lot of things that would have helped explain it to the newbies. This guy, the people who are younger, who maybe don't know that those events, what happened. So I did, a, I did a lot of research afterwards and I did the same thing with us. Cause us was so layered 
Um, and you know, I could see the sim, but I could see the symbolism and I was like, okay, a lot of this shit means something. I got to figure it out. So I go online and figure it out. And that's what happened with the blog post there. This one was a little different because it was like, man, I feel like I don't know anything. I feel like there were times where I should have given a reaction and I didn't. And when the movie ended and the credits rolled, I was still waiting. I thought something was still going to happen. And people clapped and I didn't clap because I was kind of in a state of awe. It was like, what did I just watch? I watched an alternate reality, an alternate timeline, which they're calling a they're calling it a modern day fairy tale. And it's like, okay, cool. But I made the comparison in my blog post to, you know, if they made a movie about these two guys uh preventing 9-11 that had nothing to do with counterintelligence, the CIA, the FBI, just an actor and his buddy going about their daily biz. They're age, aged. They're, they're trying to reclaim their youth. They're trying to get back into relevance. And they just happen to stumble upon the plot to 9-11 and they thwart it. That's how it kind of feels like. It's like, okay, well, 9-11 did happen. And... You know, there's a split second where you're you're like, wow, imagine a world without 9-11. Where would we be now? Then you're like, this is the real world. And 9-11 did happen, and now I'm sad again. So I know Tarantino said it's a very personal movie for him. It's his most personal because, you know, he was born in Tennessee, but he moved to L.A. when he was young. And so he was probably like five or six when all that shit went down. And, you know, it's kind of his interpretation of what happened but with a happy ending just twisted slightly to make him feel better to make others feel better to to ask what if it left me with a lot more questions than answers i'll say that i didn't have a lot of closure after seeing it and maybe that's the point of the movie is to to reignite um you know our curiosity for what happened why did it happen? Is he making an analogy to today? Is he saying like, you're taking this group for granted? White nationalists? I don't know. The problem is we don't have, in my mind, and this is where it gets a little trippy, is like the hippies in the 60s were presented as uh, peaceful pacifists, loving, caring, you know, peace, love, and granola and then Charlie Manson weaponizes them and they start murdering, you know, random people, mostly high profile celebrities who you'd think would have security. But again, it was the sixties. So who's that? Who is he comparing that group to now? I don't know. So I don't keep an eye on everyone, but, uh, you know, it's also about the transition from old Hollywood, the golden age of Hollywood, the fifties to the new Hollywood, um, and Rick Dalton's, that's Leo's character, his struggle to keep up and to make that transition, not get left in the dust. And of course, Cliff, um, his pay, he's kind of like a, a lamprey to Rick Dalton's shark. He's just kind of feeding off, you know, what uh, what Rick's able to accomplish. And I think there's a comparison there to... Quentin making uh, a kind of a coded statement about Harvey Weinstein, Me Too, and Time's Up. So he was a, a, a big-time director. 
under Harvey Weinstein's wing, under his tutelage, guidance, whatever, working with him. And then Me Too, so you could say that's the golden age of Hollywood, uh, as fucked up as it may sound. For for Quentin, that was the golden age of Quentin, maybe. And then Me Too comes along, time's up, and he realizes he has to separate himself from Harvey Weinstein, and now there's a new Hollywood emerging. And maybe this is like him saying, I'm struggling with it. I want to be on board with it, but it, because of my affiliation with Harvey Weinstein, are people going to look at me as if I am, I am Harvey Weinstein? So yeah, it's a lot to process. <laughs> it was, it was a lot to take in, and you know, uh, I just think if you don't have Pitt and DiCaprio and Robbie, I don't know that this movie gets made. I don't know if I would have been as um, into seeing it. And, you know, it's gotten, it's gotten interesting reactions from people. Like, I know Terry Crews tweeted, uh, Once upon a time in Hollywood, pot-smoking white boys dreamed of kicking Bruce Lee's ass, so they wrote it, performed it, and filmed it like it actually happened. But, Bruce, we love you and know the truth. God bless your soul. So, yeah, I mean, there was kind of a... They made Bruce Lee out to be an asshole, a cocky guy who thought he could take down Muhammad Ali. Um, and, you know, his daughter even came out and said, you know, he didn't like to fight outside of filming, you know? He was not into that. So, interesting that they would go that route with Bruce Lee. But again, I guess Quentin can can kind of fall back on the excuse that it's an alternate reality, it's an alternate timeline. But why even include Bruce Lee? And that was the other thing is like you have all these characters and they're kind of briefly, very briefly touched upon, given a backstory. We, we don't get the thorough exposition about their connections and whatnot. But I mean, the story is interesting when you actually delve into it. The movie doesn't really... And my mind doesn't do it justice, but again, I don't think Tarantino's in the in that gets in the habit of knocking you over the head and hitting you over the head with it. The same with Jordan Peele and us, you know. And I think does it make the movie more interesting and intriguing? And do I want to find out more? Yes, but at the same time, is it going to inspire me to revisit it? In the moment, am I enjoying it? And I feel like the best movies, the greatest movies, the most memorable movies, when you watch it, you are completely 1,000% invested in it. And you get you you might have some questions here and there, but you're not searching for that many answers online afterwards. Sure, you want to spur discussion. All good movies do that. All uh, you know, thought-provoking movies have those, but... For me, it just felt like, you know, you have this amazing story, this tragic story. Did you really do Sharon Tate justice? I don't know. I mean, she's like the crux of the whole movie. It's her murder that is looming over us the entire time. And I said it in the blog post, it's like her fate is in the back of our head. 
and you know, I've said others have said they felt dread the entire movie because they know what's going to happen. And then it doesn't happen. You're like, okay, not to say that she should have been, but it's almost, it's almost felt like that was what kept you watching was to figure out what happened with her. And then you have these, and you're kind of following these two guys and what appears to be kind of like a buddy comedy as they try to figure out their lives, maybe going through a midlife crisis of their own. And the two intersect. But yeah, the, the scene with Brad Pitt at Spawn's Ranch, I mean, that's like classic Tarantino, where, I mean, his ability to cause you to your heart to race and you to, to white knuckle through it and, and to have what ended up happening, you know, that you presume this guy is dead and rotting in his bedroom and turns out no he's fully aware of what's going on he's banging all these bitches and you know it was a funny moment spent a lot of time on that but it's a it's a good scene and it relates to ultimately to what ends up happening but it feels so disconnected and loose throughout the movie it's just kind of there you know Charles Manson, like his, it's it's all in your head, and that's what's. Uh, I mean, is that is that what we're commending Tarantino for? For putting that in our head, for knowing, okay, you probably have some kind of familiarity familiarity with what's going on. So I'm going to play with you. I'm going to play with that. If so, I mean, yeah, it's a phenomenal job. At the same time. I'm always of the the position, the stance that if a person knows dick about what your story is, just wanders into your theater. Can you still can you still entertain them? Can you tell them a story if they know absolutely nothing? Can you tell them a story and they'll still be entertained? And I don't think you can say that about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I really don't. I would have loved to know more about Cliff Booth and what happened with his wife. I mean, that was that when, I mean, you know, when he's on the boat with the harpoon or whatever, the spear, and she's nagging away. And it's like, I'd love to know more about what, you know, they, they, they just briefly show it. They make one or two jokes afterwards. And then it's kind of like, that's, that's, you know, and maybe that's the commentary that he's trying to impart is most of these people in Hollywood are known for their worst moment. And they get stuck with that worst moment, whether it's true or false. So, yeah, go see it, but I don't. Yeah, I mean, it got me to write almost 3,000 words about it. So uh, mission accomplished in that sense. It's getting people to talk about it. In terms of his greatest movies, no way. No shot. It could have been, in my mind, for sure. But, um, I mean, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, like, I, I just, I mean, hate, Hateful Eight was a little slow at times, but... You know, Django Unchained, these are some, like, 
really good movies. And I can't, I can't see putting Once Upon a Time in Hollywood above that. Um, and then there's the feet. I'll end with this. The fucking feet, dude. I mean, come on. And I feel like an idiot to complain about this because I think that's exactly what Quentin wanted. I think he knows that we know that he's got a foot fetish thing. He's fully aware of it, and he put that fucking thing on blast. Full display, right in your motherfucking grill. He was like, you know what? Oh, what? You don't like that I like feet? Well, here you go. Feet, 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 feet. Feet in? I mean, like, so happy this movie was not in 3D. So happy. I would have been swatting away feet the entire goddamn time. I was doing it now, and it was 2D. I mean, the scene where, she, where uh, what's her name? Quali, who plays Pussycat, gets picked up by Cliff Booth in the car to take her back to the ranch. She puts her fucking feet up against the goddamn windshield. I mean, it took up the entire screen. It's all I could look at. And I have zero interest in feet. Get it out of my fucking face. I mean, like... <laughs> To the point where it, it, it's, it's too distracting, and it really does take away from the experience, in my mind. If you're a foot worship guy, if you're a foot fetishist, congratulations. This is probably, as Tarantino calls it, his magnum opus. This is probably your magnum opus. This is probably your coup de gras. You're probably fucking a pig in shit. But for all of us who kind of uh, view feet as a way to get around, I don't think, like, getting dirty feet in my face is my idea of, of entertainment. <laughs> um, but it kind of felt like this was Quentin's swan song. If not, I think the next one is, and maybe the next one will clear up what's going on here. I mean, this is, this movie still somehow fits into the Tarantino universe, which is not as closely knit as the Marvel cinematic universe, but it's like little things here and there. You know, like the Red Apple cigarettes and whatnot, the Vega brothers that keep popping up in each movie that kind of just loosely tie everything together. And you're wondering if maybe the 10th film is what he goes out on, and that's what really brings everything together. So it's, I'm, I said that this Once Upon a Time feels like a prequel. And maybe the tenth movie will really just like bring it all together, and you'll and make Once Upon a Time make a whole lot more sense. Yeah, spent way too much time on that. Holy shit! Yeah, so we rented the long shot with Charlize Theron and uh, Seth Rogen. Um, you know, I saw that it got good reviews, something like eighty-five percent Rotten Tomatoes. So I thought I'd give it a shot. I'm not a big politics guy, not political at all. Um, try to avoid it at all costs, which is a major character flaw. But I like Seth Rogen. I like Charlize Theron. So we, we watched it. We rented it. And Seth Rogen plays like this Brooklyn hipster who is uh, works for an independent news outlet uh, website. Um, writes in a very kind of vice voice, like, you know, not afraid to use profanity and whatnot. And so he... Um, he writes, he ends up writing speeches for Charlize Theron, who we went to, I guess, school with. She's like a few years older. She was his babysitter, which she was 16 when he was 13. I was like, that doesn't seem right. But um, 
Yeah, he ends up falling for her, which, I mean, what a career for Seth Rogen. Like, are you fucking serious, dude? Like, you just continue to, to like, hook up with hot women? Uh, outrageous. Like, you're a funny guy. I get it, but your streak is just, like, unparalleled to me. But, of course, uh, I mean, uh, Cass loved it. My wife loved it. I was kind of, I don't know. I was on the fence. It was like, you know. I mean, we want to talk about like laugh out loud comedies. No, probably not the best, but it was like, you know, smart, witty, um, relevant to the times, um, made some interesting points about, you know, the two parties and maybe being a little more open-minded, but it's like, it's, it's like a, (laughs) and I'm not. I'm kind of the middle of the ground when it comes to politics, but it felt like a left, ultra left wing environmentalist's wet dream, if you will. Uh, I mean, Charlize Theron could probably run for president and win, so crossing fingers there. But like, you know, the, the idea that she can be ultra honest and transparent, if I've learned anything from my f- almost four decades on this stupid planet, I take that back. It's not a stupid planet. It's a good planet. It does it does the job right. By the way, d- side note, not to get sidetracked, but the world ended in 2012 and we're living in a simulation. All right. <laughs> I got, I, I'm a sucker for conspiracy theories. I never usually believe most of them. Um, ironically, the 1969 is like the anniversary of the moon landing. And so I'm like 95% convinced it happened, but you know, 5%. Uh, I I totally got lost. Long shot, Charlie's Theron. Oh, that she can, you know, I'm an honest, transparent person, and it's it's it is bit me in the ass repeatedly being honest and transparent. Not a good move, especially politically. And so in this movie, she makes the speech. Of course, there's always the big speech at the end. And she makes the big speech and she's about to announce her, or she's announcing her presidency, you know, running for president because she's secretary of state. And she's making the speech that Seth Rogen wrote, but then she ended up editing and modifying and, and, and saying like, uh, I'm the person that little, you know, six year old me wanted to be. And, and she changes it to, you know, no, I'm not because I'm not fighting for what I believed in when I was in high school or middle school or my entire life. And basically saying, like, fuck the president and just, like, yes, owning, uh, pulling, like, a Bella Thorne and owning it and just saying, like, yeah, the guy um, that I'm dating, he jerked off to my video and came home in his face. And it's just, like, <laughs> I don't, I, you know, trying to suspend your disbelief there. It's, like, I, I, I mean, I would love for everyone to be more honest and transparent. I, I, I live for that moment, but... Like, it just, it was kind of like a sour reminder that, like, no, nah, that shit doesn't work. No. Nope. You'd be known as the candidate who has a boyfriend who comes on his face. And you're like, I don't know. Maybe Charlize Theron is the one person that can pull that off. But his history has dictated that, you know, honesty and transparency is, like, just does not work. I'm going to continue to do it because um, I'm not good at lying but uh, or cheating. So... I'm going to continue down the path and I'm going to continue to get my ass kicked. 
that's a long shot. Uh, the upside. So this is Kevin Hart and Brian Cranston. Uh, feel good movie of the year did not get reviewed well by critics, but loved by the audience. And I can see why, um, I won't say it's formulaic. Um, the chemistry between Kevin Hart and Brian Cranston is amazing. And, uh, even Nicole Kidman is awesome. And, and her character as kind of like the estate planner business side of things, uh, helping out Brian Cranston who plays like the billionaire who is now a paraplegic after a paragliding accident who ended up losing his wife, who was hurt in the accident, then had cancer. Uh, I mean, these are, I'm downloading out spoilers left and right, but I, I, you know, I would assume that, you know, I said I was going to talk about it. So to deal with it, I liked it. Um, my wife loved it. She was, you know, had all the feels, um, but she's in tune with her emotions. I am not wildly distanced from my emotions. So it's kind of like, I need someone to like slap me across the face for anything to really connect. Although, you know, that friggin' uh, Mr. Rogers movie. Oh my God. Crying during a trailer. That's not, that's not good. Um, so yeah, I would advise, I would recommend that the upside. Um, pretty good movie. Uh, I don't know. There's nothing, no cons really. You know, it had all the the right beats, all the right plot points. Storylines are good. Characters are good. Acting was good. Dialogue was good. Um, I mean, you're, you know, it's kind of nothing is really catches you off guard. But, you know, sometimes you just need a familiar story, you know, and that that felt good that, um, of course, I would like to know a little bit more of Kev, Kevin Hart's past. But I think they did a good job of being like, you know what? Your past is your past. But at the same time, it's like, whoa, dude, you did what with a gun? <laughs> um, uh, another movie news, there was a new trailer for The Irishman, which is Martin Scorsese's next picture with, I believe, De Niro, Pacino, Pesci. I'm definitely missing a couple others, but it just looks real good. I mean, uh, yeah, that's going to do well. It's from Netflix, too, so it's, I think it should be in theaters, but it will also be on Netflix at the same time. Interesting model. I probably have that wrong. But the, I think the the big takeaway from that, I mean, it's an awesome trailer, but the big takeaway that a lot of people were talking about was the de-aging process that they, the special effects they put on Robert De Niro to make him look younger, which are the same special effects that they used on will smith for gemini man which also looks awesome um that was a trailer that played before once upon a time um i you know what i don't give a shit about what the critics say about that movie i mean it's fucking will smith current day will smith versus young will smith i mean you don't say no to that but they use the de-aging process on him so he looks like what he looked like in the 90s on fresh prince of bel-air and, uh, you know, I love the movie Looper with Bruce Willis and JGL. So this is like, you know, I get another dose of Looper, but Will Smith versus Will Smith. I mean, like, that's a that's a win. Um, but yeah, Robert De Niro looks kind of like what he looked like in the 90s, maybe. Um, and I feel like you probably you might be seeing that more of that down the road. I think they did it with. uh you with Brad Pitt and um, Benjamin Button, I think, too. 2008. 
before it's time. But you'll see that with a lot of actors and actresses that are just like elite, but are getting on the older side of things. They're just going to throw them in movies and de-age the fuck out of them. And it's almost to the point now where it's like, I mean, do you know about deep fakes? Deep fakes are a thing. And motherfucker, my God, some of the shit is real convincing. And I feel like that's like, that's almost going to be the future of movies, which good and bad, you know, we, we might end up getting to see a lot of the movies that we wanted um, in the past that we couldn't get. Almost like a video game. When you play like Legends, Legends against Legends, you can play like the 86 Giants against the 99ers or something like that, you know? I feel like we're going to get that with movies moving forward. Good and bad, because it's like, part of you is like, well, let's let the next generation come up and do their thing. But at the same time, oh man, looking forward to like Schwarzenegger versus Stallone in an action movie. Not, not, not the escape plan thing that they had, like in their prime. And I know that's ageist. I'm old, so I get it. But I mean, that's always talked about. Jordan in his prime versus Kobe in his prime. People want to see it, so I think we're going to get that a lot in the movies moving forward. Uh, Sixth Sense was released 20 years ago. I guess in August, July 99. I saw that in the theater, and holy crap, dude. That was another one where I think I, I just had surgery on my elbow to remove a bone spur. And, um, whew, man all-time reaction in the theater and then we ended up watching it like two years ago with my wife's sister who was born in 97 so she's born she was two maybe less than two when it came out and i remember like my wife and i are just rubbing our hands like <laughs> wait till she sees this twist because she said she didn't <coughs> and, and maybe this is our fault we didn't even ask her if she know knew about the twist and we might have, and she might have said no. And she's like, I haven't seen it. I don't know anything about what you're talking about. I don't know. And we're like, okay, <laughs> okay. And we watch it with her. And it happens, the big reveal. And she's just sitting there stone-faced. And we're like, you got to be kidding me, dude. And she was just like, yeah, um, I kind of have a feeling. I was just like, you know what? Yeah, I get it. I mean, so many movies have come out since that movie. And that have played with that twist and have, you know, but at the time, holy God, what an ending. What a twist. What a twist. Uh, the Matrix is returning to theaters for its 20th anniversary. You know, it's like, maybe, I don't know, IMAX, I might see it in IMAX, if it hit IMAX. Um, I'm more interested in seeing two and three in the theaters because I didn't see those in the theaters. I saw the first one in the theaters and I was like, I... I think we ended up buying the DVD, pre-ordering it, and I watched the shit out of that DVD. Um, but I did not get into 2 and 3 for some reason. I don't know why. I don't think I saw 2 and 3 in the theaters. Um, but oh my God. My one uncle, he's got surround sound, and he he loves to show off, to show off the surround sound. He throws in like Matrix 2 and 3 during that one scene where like the, uh, the Sentinels. Is that what they are? They just like a hive of bees are just swarming on uh it might be tank whoever's at like a major huge friggin uh gatling gun rotor gun just a big ass piece of arsenal weaponry 
And uh, he was like, check this out and just fucking blast it. And of course he gets yelled at. Cause that's like, that's like the me, you know, whatever it's stereotypical, but the male female dynamic is like, check out the surround sound from the guy. And he's like, it's fucking amazing. Check it out. And you crank it. And then it's like immediately like turn that shit down. It's like, just let me live. Uh, and then Andy Circus will direct Venom 2. Um, I saw Venom 1. I rented it uh, one night when I was just uh, was alone and drunk. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, yeah, the critics hated it. And for good reason. I mean, it was, it was a cheesy kind of B-movie. But I think that's what it's, the appeal was. We're so used to this fucking Marvel cranking out these superhero movies that are, you know, they kind of feel the same tonally. Um, and they're all so well done that it's like, I kind of, I kind of like the, the approach they took with Venom. I mean, the CGI is just awful. The special effects is just bad, but like his, you know, Tom Hardy interacting with the suit or the symbiote, whatever that could, that could make for some, uh, for some good laughs, you know, Andy Serkis directing though. I didn't know he was into directing. Um, so that should be interesting. I mean, guy's got a ton of experience on major, major, big budget uh, flicks. So um, I'd have to think that Venom 2 will be better than Venom 1, but I hope they don't lose that kind of campiness and cheekiness that made Venom 1 so likable. All right, so that's, uh, God, that's movies and TV. Let's talk about your New York Mets. Holy shit, what a week. I am... And, uh, and this is where my brain just goes into malfunction mode because it's like, can it get any better? No, it can't. It's not possible. We've been burned so many times in the past. We're, we're, we're riding on wings of wax towards the sun. Is that ever an expression? No? Mm, okay. But before we get into that, let's do it real quick. This week in Mets history, July 31st, 1989, the Mets obtained Frank Viola who was the American League Cy Young winner in the previous season. They give up uh, Rick Aguilera, a few others, I don't know. And uh, he just did not play well, did not pitch well, went 38-32 and 32 in 82 starts, um, and the team failed to make the playoffs in his uh, two-and-a-half-year tenure. But the point I wanted to make here was the Mets of the 80s, if they only had a freaking wild card back then. If they had a wild card, the Mets get the wild card each and every year that they don't make the playoffs. And who knows where where it goes from there. And that's what stinks. Is that, that, I mean, the Mets were a dynasty in the 80s. Mid to late 80s. And to think that they only had one World Series, they could have had, they could have had at least another one, I think. Uh, August 4th, 2012, Mike Baxter sets a team record and ties a National League mark when he walks five times in a nine-inning game and a win over the Padres. Um, Mike Baxter, he's known for that, and he's known for that catch in which he collides into the wall, which I'm guessing ended his career. I don't know that he did much after that. But it's crazy when we were getting excited about Mike Baxter. Good for him, though. I guess Juan, I bring that up because Juan Lagares walked like three times in a game uh, this past week against the Marlins, I think, which I guess Lagares is, you know, now going to get more playing time uh, with Cano hurt. 
August 5th, 2007 at Wrigley Field, Tom Glavin, a two-time Cy Young Award winner, becomes the 23rd player in Major League history to win his uh, 300th game. Tommy, Tommy G. That's in, and what's what's that won't be. That's not the memory that people think of with uh, when they think of Tom Glavin as a Met. Unfortunately. Uh, no, it's him being on the mound and getting trounced, I believe, in that 07 season against the Marlins, and we missed the playoffs. That's the lasting memory for me. I don't know. Maybe I'm different. I'm different. Yo, I'm different. August 5th, 1985, in the Mets' 7-2 victory over the Cubs at Wrigley Field, Daryl Strawberry belts three home runs, propelling him into first place with a half-game lead over the Cards in National League East. And yet again... Cardinals went on to the World Series. I believe they won over the Royals. Feels like if they had a wild card, the Mets would sneak in and, and somehow um, find a way around the Cardinals to go to the World Series and beat the Royals, which how things would have been different. How much that 2015 World Series would have been different. It wouldn't have been different. What am I talking about? All right, so that's that's this week in Mets history. Um, so the trade deadline, it came and went and, uh, all was quiet. I was not expecting that <laughs> after the Stroman trade, after the Vargas trade, you would have thought that Frazier was gone. Wheeler was gone. Possibly Noah, possibly Diaz, possibly Dom Smith. There were a lot of names being thrown around and no one moved. Um, and looking back, it's probably for the best because I think with a rotation like Wheeler, Thor, DeGrom, Stroman, Mats, things are starting to look up. It's like if you can't win three out of five with that rotation, you know, what are you, what are we doing? Um, but at the same time, you're starting to see now that Cano is hurt, now that Dom Smith is hurt, we really needed an outfielder and we really needed a reliever. You can only expect Seth Lugo to dominate for so long. He was the reliever of the month in July, I believe. Um, see if i can pull up the numbers here so yeah he won reliever of the month in july 42 batters face zero runs allowed 0.075 batting average uh 16 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio in his last nine appearances he's gone nine and two-thirds with one hit zero walks and 13 strikeouts yeah 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 i mean that's that's erotic that is just sensual but can he keep that up Again, the Mets. Last week when we did the show, I, I forget what the record was. Kind of happy. Uh, you know, I think it was we beat the, swept the Twins, but we got swept by the Giants maybe. And you thought, oh, if only they had done the deed against the Giants. If only they had succeeded there. And I, and I mentioned it in a couple of tweets, like if they had actually pulled off that sweep, they would be right where the wild card berth is, right where they need to be. And uh, since the All-Star break, the Mets have a winning percentage of over 700. I think they're, let's see here, something like 9-1. and one. That's a win. That's a win. That's a win. So they swept the White Sox. Did they sweep the White Sox? Um, they take two or three from the Pirates. And of course, they just took the last two against the, the Marlins. So only one loss in the last eight or nine. Oh my God. But 
of course. I never canceled. Just want to point that out. Never canceled. But the the two non moves at the trade deadline that are probably going to hurt the Mets. This was a, I believe this is an article from the New York Daily News. Maybe no reliever, no hitter, no outfielder. Because now with Dom Smith in like he wasn't a boot and now he's in some kind of rover thing. And with Cano and a torn hamstring, that's, I mean, I don't see him coming back in the regular season. With Jed Lowry, just like, I don't know where, MIA, he might be on Jupiter, we're not sure. You're starting to see that they, the, the offense is thinning out. I still, I still believe that they can operate at a good enough level to win. You know, obviously, like, Conforto is hot. J.D. Davis, hot. Jeff McNeil, hot. But Alonzo, you know, okay, maybe the home run derby curse got to him, but he he didn't sit there and take it. He shaved his beard. He wore some new cleats. He adopted, he, I mean, he, you know, all-time message to the fans on social media. LFGM. LFGM. He started a movement, and the fact that he's able to stay so positive and so fired up I mean, it's like watching a kid play. I mean, he had the, the game winner against the Marlins last night, and you, it's like he won the World Series, you know? I mean, the, the, and that's infectious to me. And I think that carries over. And even Marcus Stroman, you know, he makes his debut. He goes four and a third, 90-some-odd pitches. Not his best effort. I think he left with uh, in the hole, but he made the play of the week. A little bouncer come, pops off the mound, bare hands it, and throws the guy out at, at home. His positive attitude. Okay, he didn't give us the greatest effort on the on the mound, but he he tried to power through it. And the fact that he is there on the front, on the top steps of the cl- of the dugout, uh, out of the dugout, congratulating players when they score, getting them all fired up. It's a mentality, and once you have that, only good things can happen. Since mid-July, they've had the Mets have had the third best ERA, and that might, I think that might be the bullpen. So the bullpen's coming around, and we wanted help in the bullpen. Seth Lugo has been carrying us. Edwin Diaz still a disaster, but is managing to limit the damage enough to keep us winning games. And I'd like to point this out: everyone, you know. And, you know, the Stroman trade has been tainted somewhat. But here's, before I get into that, Anthony Kay, who's our top left-handed pitching prospect, his first start as a member of the Blue Jays organization, four and two-thirds, 11 hits, seven runs, six earned, three walks, three, three Ks, one home run. I'm not saying we're right after one game, but let's fucking pump the brakes on prospects. Now, that being said... I was real high on the Stroman trade last week, and then I come to find out, oh, the Mets were going to just use Stroman as uh, they were going to flip him to the fucking Yankees for their two top prospects. Oh, that hurts. That really hurts. Esteban Florial, a 21-year-old center fielder who I, I think he's an A-ball and Davey, Davey Garcia, a pitcher. And they're like number 66 and 67 of the top 100 prospects. I don't know, dude. I don't know. 
I, you know, that's what's so weird about the the trade deadline for the Mets is they were in a position where it was like, are we buying or are we selling? Conventional wisdom says we should probably sell, but then again, we've been, we've bought before in this kind of position and we've taken off. And it was the handful of players that we got around that deadline that propelled us into the postseason. I mean, case in point, was it 2016? August 19th, 2016, we were five and a half games back on the wild card with 6.7% playoff odds. We're better than that right now. I think we're in the we're almost at 30% for playoff odds, and we're two and a half, two back in the wild cards. We're above 500 for the first time since May 2nd. We're we got to 500 for the first time since May 29th. And it's and it's it's because of guys like Davis and Conforto and McNeil. I see a lot of people say like making fun of the people who called Conforto overrated. I don't think anyone called him overrated per se. I just don't think that we thought he was this top-notch all-star, perennial all-star. I mean, you got to think these guys are going to come back down to earth. I mean, we McNeil, that was a scare last night when he comes out with the cramp in his, uh, by the way, the New York Post. I mean, I follow the New York Post. I like the New York Post. But they have, like... Here's their here's their headline for on social media that they had. Jeff McNeil pulled from Mets game after curious mi- mishap. Don't say that. We're all watching the game. Don't say that. We all know it's a cramp. They said it in the fucking game. You need clicks that bad in your post? No, you don't. So I wrote back the curious case of Dick clickbait. I mean, it was a calf cramp. You gonna give everyone a friggin' uh, so you might have given someone a heart attack. It's on you, New York Post. Blood is on your hands. Um, but it looks like McNeil will be fine. Um, he's the fastest Met, the 200 career hits in Mets history. I mean, that is impressive. I know he's like 27, so he's a little bit older than your normal rookie, but he needed less than 600 bats to reach 200 career, 200 career hits. Jeff McNeil, dude. I tell you, if he stays healthy, get him, put him at second. Alonzo looks like he's coming out of whatever funk he was in. Uh, Frazier's spotty. Rosario's hot. He's been batting really well. I had a stat here that I wanted to pull up. Let me see if I can find it. Ahmed Rosario. He's hitting, he was hitting a, like 347 over the last 34, 34 games. Now, again, I mean, we're playing all-time ball. We're also playing, like, pretty stinky teams. So, you know, I get it. You don't want to get too high. We got to finish up the season, the series with the Marlins, which it's been it's been a struggle. But I think with the starters back in the lineup, I mean, they didn't. They were hardly starting anyone in that second game last night. But if they get the starters back in the lineup, get them back in the groove, hopefully you get the sweep. And then you got the Nationals and the Braves, and that's where that's where we're gonna find out what kind of team we're, we are. Is this all mirage? I don't I don't know. I think we got the momentum. I think the Nats, despite getting Azdrubel Cabrera, who's one of the guys who got DFA'd, um, 
despite that. Uh, and, you know, the Nats made some moves. I mean, they picked up, I think they picked up a couple of relievers. But here's something to take away for the rest of the season. Even if they don't, say they split with the Braves and Nats, maybe they don't win out. The Mets have played the sixth most difficult schedule in the National League thus far, but they have the sixth easiest schedule the rest of the way. Now, six, you know, only the top five make the the playoffs, so we might be just on the outside looking in, but I tell you, if you continue to get these performances out of your pitching, where everyone's going around seven, and I think the most uh, encouraging sign from this team is the fact that they got a bad start out of Walker Lockett. They got a bad start out of Marcus Stroman. Each guy couldn't even make it to, through five, and your bullpen was able to hold up, and your offense was able to come through in the clutch. You know, we're, we're firing in all cylinders right now. And I know, they're bad teams we're playing. But guess what? You got to win against the bad teams. Win when you're supposed to. And that confidence is going to carry over, I think. A lot of home games. A lot of home games coming down the stretch. 50, I think around 50 games left and like 30 plus are at home. You know, we start filling the seats, start making some noise. Who knows? I'm, I'm, you know, and for the people that canceled, there has to be some repercussions if you cancel the season. You can't just cancel, and then when we go and make the playoffs and say, yeah, maybe it's probably not going to happen. Probably not going to go to the World Series. Probably not going to win it. But if we do, and you canceled, you are not allowed to celebrate with us. You go in your room, close the door, and you do what you need to do. But you are not allowed to participate. Or you got to do something to get back in our good graces, to get back on the bandwagon. That's just how it should go. I haven't canceled, by the way. Not to brag. Um, but, I mean... If you can get, and I, and I understand, we're seeing, like, this is the high of the high. This is probably as hot as they're going to get. So they're going to come down to earth. As long as they don't bottom out and hang tough and fight, and we still get our starters giving us, trying to give us seven, and we can get to Lugo, I would even consider putting Diaz in the seventh or the eighth. That way, if you're going to blow the lead, blow it early so you can make a comeback <laughs> and put Lugo as the closer. I mean, just an artist, just a masterful painting masterpieces. I mean, his ability to just nick the, the border, the edge of the strike zone is just, it's beautiful. All right, so that's the Mets. Um. I'm telling you, I, I just, I don't know. I know it's a rough stretch. They got Murderer's Row coming up, but just survive. I think they got to win. They probably have to win close to 90 games. They're at 57 now. It's 113 games, 162. They have 49 games left. 90 minus 57. I mean, yeah, they got to win... They're going to play it at like a 600 clip. It's not unheard of. 
I mean, the fucking Phillies. It, it's a, it's a, I mean, we're talking about, this has been like a two-week stretch. So in 14 days, everything can change. I think the Phillies in 07 or 08, when they came back and made the playoffs and the Mets collapsed, it was literally the last two weeks of September. And that's why, I mean, that's why baseball is such a frustrating sport because it's 162 fucking games, dude. Jesus. You can you, you basically live through four seasons in one season. All right, let's talk Giants. Pro football focus. <laughs> you know, I, I used to take their word as gospel. I was, you know, I'm a kind of a stats guy, even though stats are for losers. I mean... Just trolled the piss out of Giants fans this past week. 35 days until football, they posted, and they put a picture of Curtis motherfucking Riley. And they said that he was fourth among safeties in passer rating when targeted, whatever the fuck that means. Just, I mean, just incendiary stuff. I don't think Curtis Riley is on the team, is he? Oh, that really got the blood boiling. And you can see it in their in their in their mentions and their comments. You couldn't find anyone else. The number thirty-five PFF. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Um, we don't normally do this week in Giants history, but August first, two thousand two, the Hall of Fame game. I remember this. They posted a clip on Twitter. It was a pre the first preseason game versus the Texans, and it was the day Jeremy Shockey arrived. <sighs> The pass he takes from Palmer, he fights off two guys, stiff arm, bowls over another guy. I mean, that right there was like, yeah, we made the right choice. Jay Shock. Oh. It's, uh, you know, very strong emotions for Jeremy Shockey. But you see, ultimately, it's like, was he bad for the team? He was at Amani Toomer's throat most of the time, you know, fighting with Burris for the ball. It's just like, I don't know. I like the enthusiasm. I like the passion. I was, you know, in a man crush. Um, you want to talk about man crush? Saquon Barkley, dear God. Well, and this is why the NFL 100 or whatever this top 100 player rankings thing is such horseshit. Number 16 out of 100. I guess the players vote on it. But come on, dude. Not even top 10. Not that I take any of this. I take it with a grain of salt, but like 16 is kind of an insult in my opinion. Guy's top 10. Guy played on an offense that did dick the first half of the season last year. The offense didn't do anything. I mean, he was the sole highlight for every game in the first half of the season. And he's 16. And, and you know, I complained that people complained that he wasn't getting the ball enough last year. And I was like, let's just pump the brakes. You know, we want this guy to play for more than like four years. We want him to play for 10 if we can. I mean, it's a pipe dream at this point because they're going to have to shell out like oodles of cash luckily i think eli will be off the books at that point but um yeah i mean 16 is just outrageous and he's gonna see more touches this year and uh, that's what i worry about is him breaking down even though he i mean they're they're posting photos of him like with his shirt off and shorts and gym shorts and it's like dear god 
this guy's this guy's not human but i want i wonder like it makes me it reminds me for some reason of syndergaard and i just read syndergaard's like uh 2018 article that he wrote for the Players Tribune where he talks about he, he had to adjust his workout because he was you know he was working he loves working out and he wasn't doing the appropriate workout for pitchers and he ended up fucking up his lat or whatever the hell it was that ended his season in uh I think 2017 because this article is right before the 2018 season and so you wonder like is you know do these guys overwork out but uh, I don't know. If he gets hurt, they're fucked. <laughs> they're really fucked. But yeah, he's gonna be. He's gonna get a lot of touches, and I think it's gonna be too many touches because Golden Tate is appealing his suspension today. So I don't even know what the. I don't know if they do they make this the decision on the day you appeal. I don't know, but odds are he's probably not gonna win that appeal and he'll be gone for four games and it's like who do we get the ball to because Sterling Shepard is a fractured thumb and <sighs> anyway Patricia Trina who you know take her or leave her I think people have ish take issue with her but she's pumps out the good stuff so she wrote an article for Forbes.com 10 observations after 10 days of Giants training camp Number one, Daniel Jones is progressing, but still has a ways to go. I mean, you have to feel good about the decision. I think now you can start to feel good about him being selected at six. When it happened, everyone wanted to jump off a building. But from all the positive feedback we've gotten, not just from inside the organization, but also from the reporters. And yeah, maybe the reporters are feeding us bullshit. It's all smokescreen. I will put aside my skepticism, my cynicism, and say, I think Daniel Jones was a good selection. And I think you'll you'll see this. Um, let's see if I have the direct quote from Ralph Vacchiano, uh, SNY's Ralph Vacchiano. Um, he's not an all-time great prospect, but he's a good one. I mean, it's much. It, it's better than the 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 shit people were saying about him when he got drafted, which is like this guy is like all time bum, a bust. Uh, is he going to be the next Eli Manning? Probably not. You know, there'll be ups and downs, but uh, does he have a playoff run in him? I think so. Down the road, uh, you know, and it, it, you know, we drafted Kyle Laletta. I mean, they, we drafted Davis Webb. We drafted Kyle Laletta, and you know, you heard some things about them in training camp, but not to this extent. It was like, oh, had a good throw here, did it right there. This one is like, okay, across the board, this guy gets it. Is he a good starter right now? No, but you could probably plug him into a game and he won't throw. He won't, you know, go 5 of 23 like Laletta did against the Redskins last year, and he won't overthrow everyone in a preseason game like Davis Webb, I don't think. So, it's time to start feeling good about Daniel Jones, folks. Observation number two, Dexter Lawrence is a stud. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, and he will make us forget about trading away Damon Harrison. Uh, Damon Harrison was, you know, effectively a two-down player 
could stop the run, but from what I'm hearing and seeing about, you know, at least how James Betcher is positioning it, he's saying that Harrison didn't really fit into his defense, um, not as flexible and as adaptive as Dexter Lawrence. And if we're being real, Dexter Lawrence, I think, is bigger, stronger, faster. And I know Snacks is somehow going to track down this video and, and give me shit for it. Apologies, Snacks. You're still one of my favorite players. Um, I still think you're elite. But I think Dexter Lawrence can be better. That's just me being a fan. Number three, and you know, I know I've been kind of Luke on this one. I've been lukewarm about this one, but maybe I'm coming around. I don't know. Tight end CJ Conrad. Strong chance to make the team. He's been getting a lot of love from reporters who seem to think that he's going to, I don't know. I, uh, they're positioning it as he's a possible replacement for Rhett Ellison, which, you know, everyone knows my stance on Rhett. It's like shit or get off the pot. Either use him or don't. I think he has like, Rhett has two more years left on his contract, three more years, and it's like fucking $4 million or $2 million a year. Yeah, yeah, yay. So if CJ Conrad can be the guy that can give us similar production to Rhett, which is I don't think is asking that much, but again, I don't know the tape inside and out. I don't know run blocking that well. All I know is from a pass catching standpoint, you know, I like to see Rhett used more. And if he's not getting open and whatever, then I'm all for CJ Conrad. A little competition never hurt nobody. Number four, Julian Love is a great fit for Betcher's defense, and that is because he is so adaptive and flexible. And I think that's what Betcher has been stressing all along is like, hey, There'll be times when you're going to move to defensive end. You're going to be D-tackle. Maybe you'll be free safety. Maybe you'll be in the slot. And I think that's what they love about Julian Love is that he can play free safety. He can play in the slot. Um, and he's uh, he's embracing that. And I think that's what they love about him most is his ability to move around. And, you know, the ability to give offenses a lot of different looks, you know, that's hard to game plan for. Number five, O-line is primed and ready to go, and that's thanks to Kevin Zeitler. And him and Mike Remmers are bonding nicely over N64, apparently, um, which reminds me, this is the, the Remmers-Zeitler dynamic feels like that scene from Step Brothers where it's just Will Ferrell and John C. Riley, and they're just like, did we just become best friends? Yeah, let's do karate in the garage. That's essentially what's happening, and I think people are going to look back and they're going to see where it's for the best. The OBJ trade, the Olivier Vernon trade, or the best. Vernon and OBJ are probably individually more talented than the players that we got back. The players we got back were players of need who can help us overall as a team, which is what I've been, what I've been stressing with OBJ this, the entire time. There's no doubt he's the best player in the NFL. Saquon, I don't know. Best wide receiver in the NFL. But um, that Kevin Zeitler move, the Mike Remmers move, not getting a lot of hype right now, a lot of question marks, but I think ultimately when the season's done or when their run is done as Giants, we're going to look back and say, Dave Gettleman, you beautiful son of a bitch. Number six, the pass rush is promising. A couple people, especially Steve Serby, of the New York Post saying that uh, they're the next great pass rush duo. 
kind of came out of left field, you know, and the guy, the team is, the coaching staff is very high on Lorenzo Carter. I haven't seen anything from Oshani Jimenez. I call him Ox. But uh, those two, apparently, when they're both on the field, could cause some havoc. Um, which, again, I think Oshan, Oshane, Oshani, I got to learn how to pronounce that. Underrated selection. Underrated pick. That is the other pick that I believe was part of the OBJ trade. And if he comes along, man. Ooh, a lot of people eating, eating crow. Marcus Golden, of course, uh, um, had an off, has a couple of off years, but I guess back in Betra's system, he could be, I guess he's unofficially listed as the starter on the weak side, the will. Maybe the strong side, I don't know. But he's he's leaped ahead of Kareem Martin, which, you know, that was unfortunate. I think Kareem Martin would do a lot better. But the pass rush was last year. Or last year, the pass rush allowed 12 receptions of 20-plus yards on plays where they pressured the quarterback, which is second most in the league. I mean, you can't do much worse than that. You know, when we get the other team in situations where it's second and long, third and long, I mean, that's when you <laughs> you really need to get pressure on the quarterback and do your... Uh, do your secondary a favor. Uh, Antoine Bethea. Here's a, another stupid, weird, pro football-focused stat. He's the number one safety in pass rush productivity, which, if you remember from last week or the week before, I said part of Betcher's scheme is, is blitzing his corners and his secondary. So it would make sense that they would uh, bring in Bethea, even though he's on a little bit on the older side. You know, he gets the job done when they do send him. I mean, sometimes you see these... These guys blitz, and it's like they've never blitzed before. But it would be nice to see Bethea get a couple sacks this year. Number seven, the inside linebackers have a new look. Uh, B.J. Goodson, it looks like he's going to probably lose his starting role. Um, just can't stay on the field. Injury-prone, um, two-down guy who goes mostly downhill. I mean, we knew he was a thumper when we drafted him. But it looks like Tay Davis and even Ryan Connolly, the guy that, from Wisconsin they drafted this year, could see more snaps. I don't know. Tay Davis was undrafted, so that might be a nice diamond in the rough story. Number eight, losing Tate will hurt. Duh. Um, last year, he was targeted 23 times on third and short, uh, third most amongst wide receivers in the NFL, and I, that's a major reason why the Giants got him is because, you know, third and short, if we don't have Beckham, they're going to double Shepard. They're going to pay some more attention to Engram. You need that third outlet. You can't just do a swing pass to... You can't just roll the dice with Barkley, even though he's a good bet. Out of the backfield, they're going to swarm him, and then he's he's only you know he can only do so much. Another reason why they got him: Tate also broke 15 tackles last year, most among wide receivers in the NFL, and recorded 12 receptions at 20 plus yards in close and late situations since the start of the 2016 season, which is fifth among receivers. I mean, these are all. I mean, they're not your flashy stats. But they help you win games. When it matters most, he's there. He's able to break a tackle, get the first down, and he's. We don't have him for. The, we probably won't have him for the first four games, which stinks. Because I think, although I don't know, you'd rather lose him for the first four than the 
the next four. You know, you know, figure out how to make it work for that first quarter of the season. Hopefully you come out of it. Three, one, two, two. Number nine, the defensive backfield looks better. Uh, yeah, big time. It's all <laughs> only ways up for that unit. Again, PFF says 20%, 26% of the Giants' pressures and hits on the opposing quarterback resulted in a sack. Only 6.2% of all pressures, including sacks, resulted in interception last year. And we went winless when we failed to, to pick off the uh, opposing quarterback. It's the worst mark in the NFL. You know? But I, I, they did. I mean, I, you can't do much better than what they did in terms of this offseason bolstering that secondary. I can't. I can't say enough what they've done there, and I think that's that's really going to be the difference for the defense this year. You guys got you got guys that can lock down opposing receivers, cause confusion, misdirection. It can only uh, it can only help your ball club. And then number ten, Eli's off season arm strength training has paid off. And that and I I failed to mention this last week I think, but he apparently lives across the street or next to Al Leiter, former Mets and Yankees pitcher. And Al like pitched well into his late thirties, I believe. And so Al hooked him up with uh, his arm strength coach, and Eli's been working with him, and apparently. It looks much better. Crisper, faster throws, is able to connect on the deep ball. Not scared to throw the deep ball. Not scared to fit it into tight windows. So I think you're going to see a much better Eli this year. With that news, I mean, the fact that he's looking better than he has in past seasons, and uh, he's only going to put up better numbers. So still, I'm still seeing and hearing things that, like, he's a lot of mid short stuff which it's just like hey, i'm so sick and tired of that shit just unleash the beast chris carter asked evan ingram on first things first uh to give him a number on catches and yards and evan responded with 80 catches and 1200 yards and i believe him i really do you know i think ingram got into a bad funk where he just wasn't catching the ball. And when that happens, Eli loses trust in you and he goes somewhere else, even when you're open. So if you can just hold on to the ball on a consistent basis, he's going to keep feeding you the ball sometimes a little too much, but that 80 catches and 1200 yards, especially with Tate out is not unrealistic. And that, that should land him his first pro bowl. First of many in my mind, if he can just keep his head on straight. Uh, Giants released their first unofficial depth chart. Um, I don't think there are many surprises here. At the wide receiver position, so with Tate out, it looks like it'll be either Latimer or Fowler, probably Fowler, and then Russell Shepard behind Latimer and Fowler. Darius Slayton is way down on the depth chart which that's not a good sign, a fucking hamstring. But, uh, you know, the running back position, I got to say, Saquon behind him, Wayne Gallman, and then Paul Perkins and Rod Smith. That's going to be an interesting battle because they brought in Rod Smith. Paul Perkins was, like, left for dead last year. So that'll be an interesting 
a competition during camp. I, I mean, you know, I've seen Perkins run. The guy had moves, and I believe it was a peck that sidelined him last year. So as long as it's not his legs that are the issue, I think that'll be interesting to watch. I don't think you keep four. I think you keep three. On defense, I don't think uh, anything's that crazy. Lawrence has been penciled in as a start as a starter. Cream Martin is uh, the starter at the Sam, so my bad. Marcus Golden is his backup, but my my assumption is Golden comes in on pass passing situations, since Martin's bigger, better against the run. And they have they have B.J. Goodson behind Ogletree at the one uh, inside backer position. Then they have Tay Davis as the starter, and of course Zoe Carter at the will. But you got to think that like. I know I keep bringing up Nat, the NASCAR package from the good old days, but you got to think that when it's third and long, they're going to have Ox, Carter, Golden, and one more pass rusher as your backers. And just, un- and just fucking unleash hell. DeAndre Baker's listed as the one starter on the corner with, uh, with Grant Haley backing him up. And Corey Ballantine listed as the third option though i'm hearing you know i'm seeing good things about Corey. he's making plays so i think he might actually leapfrog over antonio hamilton who's listed as the backup to jenkins which is kind of nuts and then you have uh, jabril peppers strong safety michael thomas backing him up and then you have antoine bethea starting free safety and julian love that's a good quartet right there i i like that I mean, you have a lot of capable guys. They've made upgrades on defense. Good upgrades on defense. Um, we'll close out with this. Five bold predictions for the Giants in the 2019 season. This is not... These aren't my predictions. I, I, I completely... It's CBS Sports. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember who wrote the article, but... First bold prediction, the Giants start 4-0. I tell you what... And this is what doesn't make sense about these predictions. 4 is a bold prediction, okay? Only because I think they can win three of the first four. I don't see them beating the Cowboys in Dallas. That said, if Ezekiel Elliott can, continues to hold out, that it can only help the Giants. But I am hearing, I'm seeing that there's this guy, Pollard or something. He's like a rookie running back for the Cowboys, who apparently, that's why Dallas is not that concerned about Zeke holding out, which is kind of scary. Um, but it, here's the second bull prediction, which doesn't jive with the first part. If they start 4-0, I get the rest of their schedule is tough, but they miss the playoffs. Giants start 4-0, and they've done this before in the past, where they start 4-0, 5-0, and then they just shit the bed down the stretch. But 4-0, and they miss the playoffs. And I believe the writer said they would finish eight and eight just because of, you know, you have Packers, Bears, Eagles to deal with. A few other teams that can give them some trouble. Number three, bold prediction, Daniel Jones starts as an injury replacement. So Eli, you know, go figure, dude. The irony. 
that he goes all this time, doesn't get injured, or doesn't miss time due to injury, and then he does this new strength training program for his arm, and then he gets injured. The irony. Number four, bold prediction, which I actually said, you know, Daniel Jones would start this year, especially if we get off to a, a, a bad start, which, you know, if the Giants don't play above 500 ball in the first four games, I think you got to really consider Daniel Jones. But um, injury replacement, I didn't, I didn't see that. I think it would be due to lack of uh, performance. Bold prediction number four, Saquon Barkley eclipses 1,600 rushing yards. I mean, yeah, I don't think that's that bold. Although you could say with Tate out and with uh, if they have any other injuries besides Tate, teams are just going to stack the box and they're just going to key on Barkley. So, yeah, that might be tough. But, I mean, 50 yards a game gets you to 1,000. 100 yards a game rushing. For 1,600, and, you know, the offensive line has improved drastically, too. I mean, we, we mentioned it earlier, Zeitler and Remmers. And Hernandez has another year, and Solder, maybe in year two, he feels comfortable now. And then, you know, if Jalapeo is as good as PFF has suggested, then, yeah, I don't think that's that bold. And, but here's the boldest, and, uh, yeah, everyone needs a good laugh. Eli Manning leaves to join Peyton Manning with the Saints because they're both from New Orleans, which, uh, I don't know. If, Drew, if it doesn't work, if Drew Brees decides to hang it up, do you come calling for Eli Manning when he's being replaced by Daniel Jones? I don't know. That's bold as fuck. All right. Yeah. Another epic episode come to a close. For the love of God, please call that damn Phone number, 862-BIT-1986. Follow me on neillynch.com. Screen name is uh, Real Cinch on Twitter, YouTube, uh, facebook.com slash giant mess. Hit me up. Feedback is so welcome. You don't even know. I mean, I, I probably will cry a little bit, but uh, I'll get over it, and and, uh, and we'll all be better off for it. So... Adios, muchachos.